this is about getting on better with people. How can I suspend my judgment so I can think again about you? So I can recognize you, literally recognize you, rethink you. Because the moment I show up in your presence, I judge you. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it's RJ here from Ultra Habits, and thank you for joining us on another episode where we are joined by Mark Bowden. He's a world-renowned body language expert, keynote speaker, and best-selling author. Voted Global Guru's number one body language professional in the world, Mark's unique gesture plane system of nonverbal communication helps audience maximize the power of using their own body language to stand out, win trust, and gain credibility every time they communicate. Founder of communication training company, Truth Plane, Mark's live and virtual keynote speeches and training prove invaluable to business leaders and teams from influential companies across the world, including Zoom, Shopify, Toyota, KPMG, and American Express, the U.S. Army, and NATO, and prime ministers of G7 nations. Mark has years of experience training business and political leaders across the globe on how to use their body both live and over digital media most effectively for superior communication. He has a range of best-selling books that focus on sales professionals, taming your primitive brain to truth and lies, and what people are really thinking. The guy's written about it all, folks, and really is super interesting and engaging in this conversation. You're really going to enjoy his style of communication. So Mark is a regular instructor for Canada's number one ranked EMBA program at Kellogg School of Business, and he is the president of the National Communication Coach Association of Canada. Mark's highly acclaimed TEDx talk, The Importance of Being Inauthentic, continues to reach millions of people. I highly recommend this. This is where I came across his work was on that particular talk, and it's phenomenal. He has his own YouTube channel and the weekly YouTube sensation. The behavior panel is featured on the Dr. Phil show. He has been on that. He's a go-to media commentator on the body language of politicians, celebrities, and public figures appearing regularly on CNN, CBS, and global news. And he's frequently quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and GQ magazine. You're going to love this chat, folks. It's all about how can you leverage nonverbal communication to create impact in your environment. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Mark. Enjoy the show. I'm out. Peace. Mark, welcome to the Ultra Habits podcast. So grateful to have you joining us. We are obviously here down under in Melbourne, Australia, and I believe that you're in Toronto, right? I am indeed in Toronto, but I have a pommy accent, which I hope you won't treat too harshly. Because I know the Australians can be a little rough on us, uh, English, quite rightly. Treat me gently. Uh, well, look, I'm an American that like exported myself here at the age of 25. So I'm kind of on the same, I'm in the same place as you. You know, they've got a love-hate relationship with us. Right. But uh, don't worry, I won't bag you out for being a pommy. <laughs> Not today, anyways, because yeah. you're the star of the show. I can't do well, that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad they treat you rough as well. 
way. It's just the Australian way. You know what? The thing about it is, you know, the lack of political correctness here in Australia, it releases a, a latent pressure, which enables everyone to get along. Like in the US and the UK, there's this politeness and political correctness. And then behind closed doors, they're like, that dickhead next door. Like, like, (laughs) like here, they'll just take the piss out of you, like right to your face. And it seems to just release this pressure. Totally. But they do. But that's not an un English thing Mm, in and of itself. But we just don't escalate it to the Aussie (laughs) level. I mean, it is like we are used to, you know, Taking the piss, or as I think they say in Australia, racking the piss. <laughs> we are used to it. But when I meet Australians, I'm like, man, that's harsh. <laughs> like, like... <laughs> but but so the reason, I mean, this might be interesting to you, RJ, but the, the, the reason that the English do it and the British do it mm-hmm. is is because status is key to our um to our society. You know, we grew out of the 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 haves and the have nots and everything in between and the status and the ranking around that and so and, and we're you know we're, we're not many hundreds of years from from when we had a civil war around that and so status needs leveling out all the time and we use this to kind of if somebody's coming in with a high status we have to be able to see that they can be taken down and that they will accept that for us to be able to work with them, get along with them. Okay, so it's an important part of, of society, essentially. And we do it with humour and we do it with comedy. And, and the Australians just push it to another level. So I wonder what your experience is of being an American in Australian around how status plays out in there, I guess, especially in the workplace, you know? It, it, it is, when I first moved here, uh, you know, people were telling me to tone down the yankness. Right. Like I was extremely enthusiastic, you know, evangelical, very happy to tell you my opinion and with no level of expertise. And I think what happens here in Australia, like, you know, in a negative way, people will frame it as tall poppy, right? Like at its extreme, right? Like Australians like to see their champions humble, uh, you know, Ash Barty, who's won the Australian Open, is a very archetypical type of champion, very quiet, very subtle, gets the job done. In America, we like to talk the talk as well as walk the walk. That doesn't necessarily go down very well here. I would say that I've had grace because I'm an American. People let me get away with stuff, and it's been a competitive advantage, if that makes sense. Like, if uh, half the shit I say, if I said it and I was Australian, they'd be like, oh, yeah, right? Like, but <laughs> it's like, you get it? Like, it, right. They can, they can point to you and go, oh, it's all right. He's American. He doesn't know what he's doing. But I <laughs> think you, you know, you hit on something for me, which is, which is, look, every society, every group, every country likes their winners. I mean, we like to be, we all like to be winners. You know, I mean, that's, that's fair. But I think it sounds to me like the British and, and the Australians in their turn as well. They don't want their winners to crow about it. No. Because if they do, and here's my the, the British experience of this, if they do, there will be fighting. And and my guess is it's the same for the for Australia. If if there's a winner and a if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. And if you start crowing about this, then then antisocial behavior will quickly erupt. 
because of the nature of how countries were formed and how they survived and how these cultures have have evolved and um yeah so i can see i can see how yeah you might get a pass for for being don't worry about him he's a he's a yank he'll soon learn uh, yeah <laughs> i realized that pretty pretty early and from being here i don't know if it's age or just becoming more australian i've become more reserved i think it's partly age it happens right as you get older you kind of tone down your opinions and you just learn to fight what battles are relevant and yeah, yeah. required but i i i think it's a good segue like how did you become so fascinated with this stuff because i share your fascination with with this uh yeah i think it's about about this and i and so let me tell you this story i was with a couple of years ago a year and a half ago um uh, a, a mate of mine, Chase Hughes, who's in the body language uh, world, um, uh, he saw a post that I put on social media, and he said, uh, "He said, hey, uh, you know, I'm just down the road from you right now. We, we were, I was in America at the time, um, in Florida. He said, I'm just down the road with you right now um, uh, uh, with another uh, body language um, uh, expert. Uh, Joe, let me grab his book here. Uh, Joe Navarro, who's a who's a complete hero for both of us, and so I, I quickly got in a car and ran over to where they were and and hung out with them. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of body language experts in the same place, and um, and I was chatting with Joe, and he kind of you know apropos of nothing, just said, you know what, it's really just about getting on with people, isn't it? Because we've been chatting about body language and all kinds of stuff. And he just just inserted in, you know what? It really is just about getting on with people. And I think that's why I got fascinated with it. Because Britain is a and the UK is a is an aggressive world. <laughs> you know, it's an aggressive place. And and there is there is there is could potentially conflict at every turn. And I think. I was excited by the idea of how could I learn and help others to get on with each other better and avoid that conflict. Not that I'm not on for a bit of conflict, because I am, <laughs> but could I do conflict better? Could others avoid it? Could they do conflict better? Could we smooth things out by learning how to think about people better? Uh, and I did it, first of all, through the visual image, through body language, just going, how would I look at people and see better what is going on here or the potential of what's going on here? And it kind of flooded out of that. I had a mind that could really handle visual imagery really, really well. And so it sat with me well and I could be good at it. And I think there's an element there, RJ, which is like, I like to be good at something. <laughs> and I could be good at this, you know? So I'm going to go personal for a minute. I I read that like when you were a kid, you had a tough time at school. And I think that's interesting reflecting on my own childhood and reflecting on um, just recently reading Will Smith's book. You know, a lot of how he formed his character, the entertainer, was to appease his environment, to appease the bullies. His dad was a bully, and he found that if he used humor and he performed and he effectively on-sided people quickly, he became quite agile at meeting the demands of others. Did that? Did your childhood 
play anything into it like you're trying to like find out okay this guy's gonna kick my butt how do i actually like like did that have anything you know in terms of that i was i was so so you know my difficulties came from being uh dyslexic and so i i'm not saying i had the hardest time on the planet there are people who had way harder times than i've ever had okay but for me it could have been a lot easier you know given all the other stuff that was going for me it could have been so much better if it wasn't for you know, my brain just didn't handle words and numbers and reading and and calculation in the in the same way that others did. But my brain handled visual imagery in an incredible way, and still still does. And I still don't understand why other people's brains don't do it. I will, I'll do some something, and other people they can't do it. And I'm like, why doesn't your brain do that? In the same way that I still get upset with myself, where I go, why doesn't your brain do left and right? It's so easy for everybody else. Why can't you do it? So so. So, but in terms of the aggression that was going on in, 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 in Will Smith's case, like because I was dyslexic and therefore in the lowest academic realm, I was with all the other people who were in the lowest academic realm because they came from backgrounds where education was the last thing you were thinking of. You were thinking, where's your next meal for coming from? And how am I going to avoid dad or uncle or mum? you know, uh, beating me up so 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 I was amongst those kids and we liked each other and so I was protected like I was I was because we were in the same boat we were in, we were in the same bunch of lazy stupid idiots to the rest same of tribe the yeah. yeah yeah so I am going to move on into you know I've heard this arbitrary statement and i don't know if it's true you know they say 80 percent of communication is non-verbal can you can you unpack that like i, I want to know like how important like if someone's a great orator but their body language sucks or vice versa like what's the ratio of importance between body language and actually how you speak hey guys just wanted to quickly thank you for watching or listening to our show. It's through your continued support that we are able to scale this thing the way we have. And if you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co. Keep up to date with everything that we are doing, everything we're going to do, and you will find some really interesting information there that will help you with your habits. Anyways, back to the show, guys. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, let me let me unpack that very simply, first of all, which is, look, if that's true, 80% of all communication is nonverbal, well, then obviously that's nonsense, you know, because, because how would I ever read a book if that were the case? <laughs> okay, so this, this uh, you know, and I think what that tends to come from is the Morabian study, which was, which got um, misread and miscommunicated as 93% of all communication is nonverbal. No, what Morabian was saying, and this will answer your question, is in order for another human being to get theory of mind about you, now theory of mind is when I think I know what you feel and intend towards me. 
Now, I don't know because I'm not a mind reader. Nobody is. But I think I know. Okay, It's called theory of mind. I get a hunch. I get an intuition. And my brain goes, oh, I think you're probably right about this. He's happy. He's sad. He's happy to see you. He's upset with you. He's angry. Whatever it might be. He's disgusted. Whatever it might be. In order to get that theory about you, the majority of the information that my brain wants is nonverbal, is a picture. What you're doing in your face, in your body, and the environment that you're in, the context that you're in. First of all, it takes a picture, and it's 55% of its decision is based on that picture. Then it goes, well, what's the intonation of the noises that, that RJ is making? Like, what is, what's the sounds coming out? Not the words, but what's the sound? Is it upward inflection? Is it downward inflection? You know, does it, is, it, is it crackly and violent, or is it smooth and, and, and soothing? You know, and so about a third of the information that it wants is the tonality and the remaining kind of three percent of the information that it wants is just the words. Now, that doesn't mean the words don't matter. OK, but if it comes down to it, that your words are different from the other information that you gave, the nonverbal information, we will default to the nonverbal information being the accurate one and the words being untrue and a lie. So we can boil it down to this. Uh, RJ, you can say, hey, Mark, I'm happy. But if I do not see clear and present nonverbal data to confirm that, and I see clear and present nonverbal data, tonality of voice and, and, and images to say the opposite, I will presume that you are lying to me. And it will feel so strong that nothing you can say will deviate me from that choice. So I judge you immediately, okay? And I judge you and your feelings and intentions towards me, not based on what you say, based on what I see you do and how you perform. Now that you, let, let me ask you, now that you know that, does that give you a level of awareness to not be bound by that? Like you is a is an is a professional and expert that now knows how the body operates. Are you almost like I would say like a meditator in a way, like where you've got some space from your initial like, or do you still personally are you still bound by those same rules? Do you find yourself still reacting in the same way that you know we're ingrained to? So here's the situation is I cannot stop my instinct. It is in, it's lodged in the part of my brain that the only way to stop that part of the brain is to stick a sharp object in there or take some drugs that will stop your heart beating. Okay. So you can't, you can't stop your instinct. Okay. However, I can know my instinct has a bias. Okay. And a very strong bias based on my survival. My instinct is in it for me. It doesn't care about you in it for me. So I know it's got a bias and I know I can't stop it. But that doesn't mean I can't take those judgments and put them for what to one side if I know their judgments. And so and so now we get into the business, RJ, of of what what Joe was saying, which is Joe Navarro was saying, which is this is about getting on better with people. How can I suspend my judgments so I can think again about you? So I can recognize you, literally recognize you rethink you because the moment i show up in your presence i judge you okay and and who you know i judge you on a spectrum from you know worst person on the planet to i'm in love with this guy you know and it's somewhere it's going to be one or the other or somewhere somewhere in between okay but but i judge you now 
Did I judge you accurately? Well, who knows? Only time will tell. Okay. But if I've judged you on the negative side, I, I could be wrong. And that's going to be that wrongness could could alter my life. Now, if I've judged you on the positive side, I still could be wrong, but it's a, it's going to be an optimistic relationship. Hey, you could con me and cheat me, and then I'll be disappointed in you. But what I'm trying to get to here is, is there time, is there space for you as a human being to re to recognize people, yeah, rejudge them, and just have a little bit of space to put your biases aside for a moment and go, what do I maybe really have here in front of you? So here's one way you can do it in terms of critical thinking is I feel my judgment towards you and it, it'll show up as a set of words for me. Like I will describe you. I'll go, oh, RJ is, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then at the end of that, I put the word maybe. I get my conscious mind to go maybe. And then I start looking and listening and hearing and asking more questions. And now I've started the job of critical thinking about you, which could get me closer to the truth about you. Your perspective, though, your perspective, though, for the individual that is presenting themselves to the world is making the assumption that they're presenting themselves to unaware people right like it, it, in to a degree right like that particularly that talk on ted t on on ted it's that by presenting ourselves in a certain way we ensure that we create the most opportunity to maximize how many people we're we're not indifferent to right <laughs> right right and and so um i want to talk about you know, we talk about the reptilian brain and why the reptilian brain is so interested in recognizing body language. I know that you've said that, and, and many people have said that our survival depended on it, right, at one stage. Can you go into the four, I think four or five categories that we place people in once we recognize them? Yeah, yeah. So, so the moment you see somebody, that instinctual part of your brain, the, the, the reptilian brain, the one that is dealing with your pure survival goes, is this person a friend to me? Are they a benefit to me? Is this going to be useful to me, this human being? Are they a threat to me? Are they an enemy? Is there going to be a downside to them? This is all a prediction. It's just trying to predict the future. Are they a friend? Are they benefit? Are they risk? Are they enemy? Could I mate with them? Do they look like they have the right genetic code? Yeah, that this would be this would produce really healthy offspring, so that so that that selfish gene, you know, gets through. And if none of those, if not friend, if not enemy, if not mate, then I can now be indifferent to you. You have you you will incur. There's no risk, no benefit around you. I can't pass on my genes or I don't want to. It's not a good match. Just move along. Now, that doesn't mean that I actually move along. I could be in a conversation with you. You know, you you could, I could be, part of me could be a really good social actor, okay, and put on a, a really good unconscious performance that I'm engaging with you while my instinct is unconsciously 
gauging the whole of the rest of the room to go, where's the benefit? Where's the risk? Where's the potential mate? So you might move away from a conversation with me going, I oh, think that went quite well. I, I can't wait to get, you know, the guy's call so we can, you know, get this business going. And, 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 and you don't realize that I wasn't truly engaged. I don't even realize that. My instinct has done all the work for me. It made me social with you and conned you. And it conned me as well until I could, it could drag me away and find something better. I guess that's why so many people hate parties and networking and because they really don't know how to act. Right. Like it's like, it's like, what do I, what do I do? Like, you know, it's like, I don't drink alcohol either. Right. Like I, I, my wife says to me, she goes, you'll be in conversation. This is a bad habit. She'll be like, you'll be deep in conversation with people. Then all of a sudden you'll just say to me, let's go home. Because the whole time I'm quite conscious that I'm performing and I am, I'm an introverted extrovert in a way. Like I get exhausted very quickly. And then all of a sudden, my wife will be like, what do you mean? You look, And I'm like, the whole time, I've been quite conscious of whilst I'm having these conversations, just reflecting on what you're saying, I'm still conscious of like, I'd rather be at home in my couch, <laughs> just chilling out, like watching the TV show. Because it's work for you. Yeah, it's work. It takes, it takes energy, Okay. And so after a while, you run out, especially if you're not seeing any payback, especially if you're going, well, there is nothing that's going to, you know, feed me in this, in this room. So, you know, I may as well go home. It's not worth the energy. Like the economics is clear to your brain. It just goes, this eco the economics don't work here. If the economics worked, you'd say, we've got to hang around longer and I will work harder. Mm, that's such a, yeah, I, I love, I, are, are you a, are you an evolutionary bio? Are you an evolutionary biologist? Or? Well, you would, you would more say evolutionary psychologist or Psycho evolutionary or, or behaviorist would be a little even more accurate. And that would and that would suggest that what that what that says is, is that my models around why people do what they do, why they behave as they behave, is based on the idea of evolution and and that things only happen because they are a benefit to the organism yeah and so you can look at any piece of behavior and go they're not doing that because they know it's bad they're doing it because it serves a benefit and i just can't understand what the benefit is but if i did and then i could interject myself into this and probably get along better with everybody yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary stuff. I just finished *Sapiens* and it's yeah. one of my oh, it was a brilliant a read, book. brilliant read, fantastic book, great, oh. great book, great book. So great well book. done with such a complexity of of information, but uh, yeah. it's super annoying when people write books like that because <laughs> you're like, why didn't I write it? Right? Four books, I'm like, damn. It, 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 it was funny because because I, I was always a fan of Jared Diamond and he reviewed it, and I was like, I'm sure Jared Diamond secretly pissed off too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so why is it so critical or why do you think it's important for us to make people not indifferent towards us um well look i um well because we're going to miss a whole bunch of opportunities potentially and that's the main thing is 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 we will miss out on a whole bunch of 
of potential niches, potential areas where we could there could have been some abundance for us, or just fun, you know, or just something different and and more interesting. Look, we are designed to hang around with our own kind, you know, because it is in in all in all kinds of ways our own kind. Just think about who you are, and if you say, you know, what is my kind, my kin, yeah, my kindred. Yeah, the people we are designed to hang around, the same values, beliefs, rituals, customs, goals, concerns, and signals. And we get that idea from the visual image, first of all. So, so you know, Ajay, I look at you, and I am designed to look at your skin color yeah, and designed to go, he's from somewhere radically different from me. And therefore, I need to be careful. Now, the, the evolutionary-wise, there's a grain of truth to that, but it may not be as true as it was, okay? So I have to, when my instinct does that, I have to go, maybe, perhaps, let's investigate, yeah? And the more I go maybe and perhaps, the more I find out how similar we are or radically different, and suddenly I go, Damn, I was right. The guy looked like he wasn't, he didn't hold my values or my beliefs and had a wholly different goal. And I hung around long enough and I really investigated. And actually, it became more true as the day went on. Yeah, I, I think, Mark, that message is really important from a, you look at the geopolitical situation and you look at people's, I mean, where you're, what you're saying is if more people realize their innate biases, they could then recognize that, okay, my judgment's coming up because I'm looking at them. They're physically different. You know, they're, they look different. They talk different. If more people realize that they may be in a better place to then hold space with their judgment and the world could be a better place. Um, your, your, you know, your piece on the importance of being inauthentic. I think a lot of people have a weird relationship with that word authentic nowadays. What the, like, you know, and I know that it's so subjective, right? Like, but you and I were talking before the interview, like, I think that was a really important talk in the sense that like, you know, none of us really feel like doing stuff all the time, but we have a duty to ourselves and to our others to spread and share our ideas or thoughts. And it's very important for us to, to be able to do that and to hold the attention of other people. Can you unpack that piece on why it's important to be inauthentic and what that actually means in just in your words? Yeah, so so it's important, I think, because of the, the nature of that word in that authenticity got this moral high ground. It literally became, and still is for many people, a, a, a religious ideal. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's for, for those people that weren't now going to a church, which was the majority of people, yeah, their way of suggesting that you didn't have a, mor a morality or a high ground was to say, I don't think you're being authentic. 
because because they couldn't go to a book and go, look, you're not doing this. That's in, written down in the in the good book. Yeah, so they couldn't do that anymore because they'd forsaken that for all kinds of, I think, very good reasons. But now, what have they got? Well, now they've got this quasi-religion of authenticity, yeah, which has no no markers and no boundaries. Okay. And and so number one, it became a way of shaming people, <laughs> of going, well, I just don't think they're being authentic, or I don't think you're being authentic right now. Or can you be authentic with me? People would go, what? What? Oh, no, I don't know how to go. What? What? You know, it would completely bemuse people. Keep it real, man. Keep it real. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember the first time a good friend of mine rang me up because he was he was part of a of a scheme, one of one of the schemes that actually really coined authenticity and he rang me up and said well you know i want to let you know that there was this point you know where i wasn't authentic with you <laughs> i was literally i was literally man i don't understand what you're talking about i have zero idea what like i understand this is important for you and i get that from your tone of voice over the phone like i totally understand that but i need to tell you that i have zero comprehension of what is going on here and why this is happening and what you're talking about okay so 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 i i i felt it was a it was a it was a bit of a problem and then it and then it emerged into this idea of well you should be able to do whatever you want to do like you got to be authentic do whatever you feels right for you and i was like well that's just dangerous because that if that you know, and it's what I do in the talk, it's say like, if I do that, that's just antisocial. That's just because not only have people now left any kind of moral bounds, and I totally understand that. I'm not, you know, I totally get that. But now they'd left all social bounds. It's like I can say whatever I like, do whatever I like. It's like you'll hurt people, and that's okay if you want to do that, because that would be authentic. Is going, I want to hurt people. I know this will do it, okay? I understand that, and I'm going to do it right now. It's like, yeah, that's authenticity. You are truly writing the story here in a conscious manner, yeah? And so what I found is that people were using authenticity to get away from doing what was necessary or doing what was, what was right or, or bigger for, for society. They became antisocial. Well, I want to do this for me. Like, yeah, but you're not just you. Like, you are you, but you are a social mammal and you're part of a group, okay? And that group might be annoying. So, so you have to work out how you function within that group. And that's really hard and that's really complex. And, and if you want to function well within those groups, you've got to do the work of that and the choices of that, not run away from it by going, well, I'm just going to be authentic and they're not authentic. Anyway, it is quite complex. And, and, you know, if I'm not making sense to anybody, you know, listening out there, go and watch the, the, the talk, uh, the importance of being inauthentic. And that may, may make some more sense. I, 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 think, I think what you said there on doing the needful thing, you know, like what's required. And, you know, we talked about it before uh, we aired the interview here, doing what's required versus what I feel. I think that's really important. And yeah, I would highly recommend for our audience to go check that video out. It's extraordinary. Uh, and it's very well choreographed in terms of how you deliver that speech. So in terms of cultural context, would you say that body language is universal? 
some elements are and some are are not and some are on a spectrum okay so there's some elements of body language just let's conquer the the quick and easy ones which are there are some um, elements of body language out there that mean a completely different thing in a different culture like if i do the 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 u.s thumbs up or european thumbs up signal if I do that, um, I think in in uh, Turkey, uh, that will give me a whole different result than the one that I was expecting from people. Okay, if I do the AOK gesture, the American AOK gesture, yeah, that will give me a very different result in some cultures, in some places. So that means these are signals for something, and they literally are. They have an element of language to them, which which they may well have a different meaning. Like there are there are words that sound very similar in 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 language, phonics that sound collections of phonics that sound similar, but their meanings can be very very different. Okay, so that so there are differences. Then there's the universal things. Okay, which is which rely on the fact that you are fighting gravity just like I'm fighting gravity. Okay, and so if you do a postural bump, which is like you start pushing up against gravity, yeah, the optimism, the fight that you're having with gravity is easy to recognize and, and will be very, very universal. If I say something and you, and you bump up and you pop up optimistically, yeah, then, then what that suggests is, is that I have emboldened you in your fight against this universal, which is gravity. Yeah. And so that's, that, again, that's not going to change. Now, there are all these universals that then get augmented by the groups that we're part of. And they get, we can roughly say they get augmented in volume or suppression. Okay. So let's take, um, let's take smiling for example yeah you and i um could go to some countries where we if we weren't on our game you know and suspending our judgment we could come back from them going well they don't smile there <laughs> okay it's like well no like they clearly do they have to like all human beings have the have the ability to smile okay they have that ability now. Some, some, some. Their neurology is not, you know, constructed in the same way, and it's going to be more difficult, or it won't show up. Yeah, or that ability is denied them in some way. Those are outliers. Okay, and that's not cultural. That's 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 neuro yeah, about the neurology. But we go go to a culture, and we go, well, they don't smile. It's just we we don't know the extent to which they smile in certain situations and not, or we weren't invited to the places where they smile, or they weren't smiling around us, yeah? Because you and I are on, on a North American level. We know, we know how much somebody needs to do all the signals of smile for our, our brain to go, oh, yeah, that person's smiling. You go to a different culture, and it can be way more subtle way more subtle you go to another culture and you're like why are they smiling so much like what's happening there yeah yeah it's yeah it, it might my dad it's interesting like when he went to china he goes no one smiles and like my, my parents are from the south pacific or fiji everyone's smiling all the time like you're like wow 
why is everyone always so happy? But it's almost like there's a permanent smile on people's faces. Right. So there's so so we got one end of this spectrum that goes, you know, they don't smile, and another end of the spectrum that says, well, they smile all the time. Well, neither can be true, can it? Neither can be accurate. That's all about our perception of of and what we saw within that narrow view of of what we saw, essentially. So so look, there are there are cultural differences. Um, the best way to find out those cultural differences is to go to somebody from that culture, not somebody who visited, like, like somebody who grew up in that, yeah, and has maybe even thought about that about that culture a bit, and go, hey, what do I need to know? What do I need to know about body language here? What do I need to know about behavior uh, here? What I found really interesting, I'll say this, is – in your TED talk, when you did that stance with your palms open, that was exactly how I've seen every Jesus Christ statue. And it's like they had that level of wisdom to create the statue then, back back whenever. Like that was crazy. Like to know that was that positioning and that stance whenever that that image was created would be inviting to everyone because he's. Because you were literally—I don't know if you did that intentionally—but you like you were like the the Mark Bud Bowden Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was crazy, right? Yeah, like, it's an intentional image that the medieval artists at the time created, because they knew that if you were trying to, as the Romans wanted to do um, initially, which was to create a universal religion, one that would work absolutely everywhere, that you could walk into a country and replace the gods that were there with your gods is you needed icons, you needed iconography, you needed images that everybody would go, well, that guy's nice. <laughs> he's a nice guy. Yeah, he's not gonna, he's, he looks like a good god, you know? <laughs> you know, or, or, or demigod in this, in this case, you know? So, so, um, so yeah, they totally knew what they were doing, and they and and so many of the tools and techniques. You know, I've got it here next next to me. This big book, uh, big book down here. I won't pick it up; it's too big. La Pittura Italiana, which is which is which is a very old book, but it has all of those um, from early medieval icons in there, and you can see exactly how the artists know what they're doing because nobody the people couldn't read and write they weren't reading the bible they were looking at the bible okay and they needed to be able to walk into a church or the icons actually would be paraded around in the streets yeah and they needed to be able to look at those and go that is what i would aspire to i would aspire to that being that human being that mother that son that son of god I would. I, I don't want to be that Judas. <laughs> so look at how Judas will be will be shown with asymmetrical gestures, often some of them covering the mouth. Yeah. Now that's not because liars cover their mouths. Good liars absolutely do the opposite, actually, because they know this. But we get really worried when we get insufficient data about somebody's mouth because we stop being able to lip read. And therefore, the, the data we get is far less. And therefore, our ability to decide or feel like we can decide what is true and what is false goes away. And so if you cover somebody's mouth, people will be more um, uh, see more risk in that person. 
essentially, because they can't judge them so accurately, or so they believe. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I, I never even thought about that. Like back in those days, people wouldn't have been able to read. And so, so much of what was conveyed was through imagery and, and pictures and icons. So I think what we'll do is we'll start to land the plane. We always ask our guests, like with their level of expertise and subject matter, like what could the audience do in the form of habits to start to develop better body language? Like what are things people could do just simply to start to become better at body language and how they position themselves? Yeah. So, so think about two types of body language, open and closed. An open body language is like when you've come in from a cold day, uh, you know, you're wet and cold, covered in snow or whatever, and you stand in front of a fire and just imagine what you start doing with your body in order to let that warmth in. Let's just say, and whether you were sitting or standing or reading a book or whatever you were doing, okay, or listening to it or watching a show, okay, what would you do to let that warmth in? Can you do more of that around people? Whatever you're doing, can you do more of that? Now think about closed body language. Okay, you go you go out into the cold and it, it is windy and it is wet and it is freezing. Now, whatever you're doing, whether you're standing outside having a drink or you're sitting reading a book or you're having a conversation with somebody, notice what your body is doing to deal with that cold. Can you do less of that when you're around people? More open body language and less closed body language, more open, warm, less cold, closed. That's brilliant. Well, Mark, thanks. Uh, really, really uh, valued the time. It was a fascinating conversation. Where can the audience find out more about you, what you're doing, what you're up to? Yeah, so I, I would direct them to two places. One, it's really easy. Go to truthplane.com, T-R-U-T-H-P-L-A-N-E, truthplane.com, and you'll see all the work that I do all over the world, and you can you know, get hold of me there. But also, you're probably on LinkedIn. So head over to LinkedIn, Mark Bowden, find me, you know, link in with me. I put up a lot of videos there and you can get more of my work from there. So hit me up on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Mark. And I will say this before you go. I really love that piece where you did the analysis of the politicians. I would anyone that wants to laugh and really wants to get some insight into the kind of work. It's quite interesting how you did the analysis of Mark Trudeau. Uh, at Donald Trump or Ivanka Trump when she's looking at him like he's like it's really good stuff so anyways we'll wrap it up there thank you so much for your time Mark my pleasure thanks for a great interview really appreciate it